Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Shi. I'm a freshman at UCLA, um, was elected as the youngest Joe Biden delegate, and also co-hosts this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl, about my experience as the only woman on the trial team for the Watergate case. Uh, I've also been an MSNBC legal analyst for a number of years now, uh, as well as, of course, a former Watergate prosecutor. And I am very much looking forward to today's special episode of intergenerational politics. Yeah, so today we are going to be discussing um, a lot with Jill's good MSNBC friend and former assistant director of counterintelligence at the FBI, Frank Vigluzzi. Um, We'll talk about what happened last week and some of the horrific events that we saw and what will live on for as one of the darkest moments in our country's history um, when Trump supporters followed his instructions and attacked our Capitol building to to stop Congress from counting its votes. Um, We've seen now already up to six people dead, dozens injured, and many Republican senators and representatives calling out Trump to be impeached um, and removed from office. And we'll also talk about his book, The FBI Way, um, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence, which you can see right behind him. Um, It is a timely, informative, and important book, not only after the events of last week, but because all generations can learn from the lessons that Frank offers in it. So first, thank you so much for being here, Frank. We are really appreciative and really look forward to the discussion. Oh, it's my pleasure, Victor. And and to to join Jill in the discussion is an extra, extra benefit. Thank you, Frank. Um, So I wanna start with the horrifying events of last week, January 6th, a day that will live in infamy along with a few other horrible events in our our lives. And these events shocked Victor and me. Uh, We always look at things from an intergenerational perspective, but this is one that we both could not explain. I'm sure you and the rest of the country feel pretty much the same way because we know the facts. The president invited his supporters to DC for a rally and to get their help with what he was calling Stop the Steal. He promised them a wild ride. If they showed up, they came and then he revved them up. He goaded them to march to the Capitol, promising he would join them in the march, which of course he didn't. And their intent was to stop the functioning of government, to stop the counting and announcement of the total votes cast by the Electoral College for the President of the United States. Anyone following social media knew that there was violence in the offing. And so my first question to you is, why was the response so tepid? Why didn't they mobilize enough personnel to deal with this threat? Well, we're all asking that same question. And, and here are some of the answers I offer based on context I have with, with sources and my own experience in national security work. So first, um, I wanna say just generally on a macro level, that, that the lens through which I see things is, is often that national security lens. And I, I am saying openly that what we've been watching for the last four years is essentially a kind of radicalization process. I say that because of my work with regard to international terrorism and very much the the process is very similar. You take people in search of something, you you take people feeling disenfranchised, whether it's socioeconomic, cultural or otherwise, you add a dose of hatred into it and you give them a charismatic leader who speaks directly to them and you have a radicalization process. And what we saw at the Capitol was the fruits of a radicalization process with the radicalizer in chief being sadly um, the greatest insider threat of all, the president of the United States. Now, having said all of that, the buildup over the last four years and more specifically over the last four weeks should have provided all kinds of intelligence warning signs and indicators And in fact, those of us who consider ourselves armchair uh, intelligence analysts at home could see this play out on social media over the course of the last couple of weeks. Now, there was a very interesting uh, news development out of NBC News, 
in the last 24 hours where they have disclosed that the FBI apparently provided intelligence concerns about the Capitol to the Capitol Police and the Washington Metropolitan Police. Additionally, the New York Police Department Intelligence Unit provided similar intelligence concerns. So your question becomes even, even more pronounced. If indeed they were well-equipped and armed, if we all saw this coming, is this more than simply, so, so for, therefore I don't call it an intelligence failure, I call it a failure to act upon available intelligence from a security mm -hmm. standpoint. So this raises the question, what, what happened and why? And so we've heard everything so far from optics, meaning, well, you know, the DC mayor didn't want National Guard on her streets because she didn't want the debacle that occurred when Trump crossed the street to go to church with a Bible in his hand. She didn't want the militarized presence. Then we hear the Capitol Police implying that they didn't know what the threat was. They didn't want, uh, you know, Capitol Police are really good on a daily basis of screening and securing the building, but they do so from a mindset of free and open government. The public can come in and see their government in action. And so everything is geared toward openness there. And then we hear reports, more nefarious, that the Pentagon may have declined National Guard ahead of time. So um, all of this being said, we're going to have hearings and investigations. Um, but I also have to use this bully pulpit I have for the next uh, few weeks to point out something I'm passionate about, which, which is we still don't have a domestic terrorism law in the United States. Now, there's good reason for that, and we can talk about that. But I'm here to tell you that if this was an international terrorist initiative, if we change the religion of the people who committed this insurrection to Islam, and we change the cause from overturning a vote to establishing a caliphate or violent jihad, the FBI would have been undercover in their chat rooms and social media. They, have, they would have obtained electronic surveillance and they would have had informants and maybe even prevented it. And certainly after the fact, there would have been a heavy hit of an international terrorism charge that could get them 20 years to life. So we, we've got, we, we lack tools on the domestic front to get into these groups and people beforehand. Let me point out something, which is one, I agree with 100% of what you've said. I want to add that if we change the color of the participants and if they weren't shouting, we're here because the president wants us to be here, we would have had a different reaction. Uh, but on the issue of domestic terrorism, I've been keeping a list of things that I think the Biden administration must tackle, norms that must be uh, made into laws, not just norms, new laws that we need. Domestic terrorism is certainly one. But I want our listeners to know that there are plenty of laws that were violated, that people can be charged with crimes. Sedition was committed, and it is a 20-year felony. So there are laws to, to punish the actions that were taken, even if you don't have a law that says domestic terrorists. The real failure seems to me that the FBI and other agencies are denied the tools to investigate yeah, the proactive and preventive things that happen on the international terrorism side are, are because laws permit that proactivity. So I'll give you an example from way back in, in my uh, early career. We had a case uh, in a bank robbery, and we had a known bank robber whose girlfriend told us he is going to rob a bank this week. And the prosecutor assigned to this said, not enough. You're going to have to catch him on his way to the bank. And so we watched him for a week. We surveilled him. He was definitely casing banks. He was on his way to do it. We let him drive to the bank on a given Friday to do the robbery. And we ended up shooting it out with him in the parking lot. And it, it didn't end well with him. But I, I, I use that example because that's essentially where we are with regard to domestic terrorism. The, Frank, the, I have to share something with you because I have an exact same story, a case I prosecuted in California, we got the FBI got intelligence that two mob hitmen were on their way to California to kill people involved in the labor dispute. And so they followed them. They got on the same plane. They followed them from Boston to California. And 
they followed them and followed them and followed them. And then they were getting worried that the murders were going to happen and they wouldn't be able to stop it. So they entered their hotel room and made it obvious that they had been made. They found guns, they pulled them out and left them visible. So as soon as the two suspects came back to the room, they fled, they packed up and they left and they were arrested for a speeding violation on the highways going to the airport. And right. then we're called before a grand jury where they lied. Yeah. And so I prosecuted them for their lie because we couldn't prosecute them for right. the attempted murder. So yeah, there, there's a big difference. Um, but I know Victor has some questions. So Victor, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I guess just for my generation, it might be useful for you to just explain um, what the FBI does and some of the functions and components. Because I'm because. Uh, I think we all kind of look at FBI from the lens of like Criminal Minds and um, Quantico and, and those TV shows and movies. But can you explain like kind of what the like reality of the FBI is and some of the responsibilities involved um, with FBI? So the, the FBI is a dual or hybrid agency. It is both a member of the U.S. intelligence community and it is also the, uh, the nation's premier law enforcement agency with responsible for over, responsibility for over 300 federal criminal violations. It has authority throughout the United States. It has gun and badge carrying agents with the power of arrest. There's approximately roughly about 12,000 special agents with guns and badges, and then a total of about 35,000 total employees from, from language linguists to scientists to um, evidence technicians, et cetera. Um, they also they have 56 field offices inside the United States, and they have 60 small offices abroad in U.S. embassies. Hmm. Now, the intelligence side of the FBI is involved in things related to national security. And that includes its number one priority of counterterrorism. Number two priority, counterintelligence, countering the efforts of foreign intelligence services operating inside the United States. So you have this fairly unique hybrid of law enforcement and intelligence in the same agency. Other countries don't do it like that, including our neighbors to the north, like Canada, that has two distinct agencies with a wall between them and our friends in the UK, who again, have two distinct agencies mm -hmm. with a wall between them. So um, it's a unique agency, it's a very powerful agency. And, and right now it's, it's facing a challenge similar to the challenges faced in the aftermath of 9-11. A, a problem extent, instead of international terrorism, a problem that director Chris Ray has described as the number one priority facing the FBI, domestic terrorism. So, so let's kind of talk about that and kind of what the responsibility of the FBI now is in the aftermath of last week. Um, are you able to tell us a little bit about what they're doing right now in terms of searching for who participated in last week's attacks and some of the tools that are available to the FBI to deal with that? So I know now, now there's discussion about social media platforms, kind of looking at that, um, but also kind of looking at who organized it, who paid for it. Um, just give us a sense of what the FBI is looking for um, right now in terms of the in terms of holding those accountable. So you have you have a couple of things going on simultaneously. First, it's it's all hands on deck. FBI is now in a twenty four seven crisis mode operationally. Every office involved in identifying those who had any role inside the Capitol or planning the Capitol event. And as NBC News reported, they may have disrupted travel of over a dozen people. Now, there's the other thing going on simultaneously. They're in a race against the clock to wrap up not only those people from the Capitol, but identify and somehow neutralize people planning violence in the next days and as we head toward the inauguration. So this tension exists also between trying to work with US attorney's offices to develop strong, strong cases, strongest possible charges, maybe even convene a grand jury, Maybe th I know they're thinking about an enterprise approach or identifying leaderships so that they could take an opportunity to take a whole group down, maybe the Proud Boys, I don't know. But that, that tension exists because the clock is ticking mm -hmm. toward the inauguration. So don't be surprised, and we're seeing this, if you see arrests right now on what we call complaint charges and then superseding charges with perhaps grand jury indictments later on. Yeah, that that is definitely going to be on, on the forefront of all of our radios. Um, can, can you? Oh yeah, go ahead, Jill. Yeah. Only because my Twitter followers are sending me suggestions for what the FBI has to do 
and I know they're probably doing all of these things. Obviously, they're reviewing all social media, uh, facial recognition, which because these this mob also is not wearing masks as they should be for social distancing and safety, um, which means it's easy. But they also have suggested that uh, airline records and hotel records know that a lot of them are staying near the mall, um, that that should be used, that cell phone records, because all of them had their cell phones, you know, holding them up and taking selfies with, sometimes with Capitol Police, sometimes just of the destruction. Um, I assume they're doing all of that. So everything you just mentioned um, with, the, with the armchair detectives at home who are very savvy, um, is being done. I, I wanted though, and, and, and the geolocation of cell phone is really essential. So when someone, you know, these people aren't rocket scientists. When you're, when you're bringing your cell phone and taking a, a selfie inside the building, understand that you are geolocating yourself. So, you know, very, very good. And the fact that you've thrown your phone away afterwards doesn't, doesn't matter. It's, we got it now, but I want to, I want to just throw in that we still got these, every the things you've just went through, and I'm going through the DOJ guidelines in my mind for intelligence-related investigations. Some of these become problematic because, again, back to my theme, we don't have that domestic terrorism law. So the issue of whether you can walk in with a subpoena um, or, or, uh, or a search warrant and tell a hotel, I want every name of every guest in this building for that week. I, I'm sure some of the lawyers at DOJ and FBI are pulling their hair out on what can be done and what can't. And then, you know, easy for the average citizen to say, well, I'm sure the FBI is monitoring all social media. Um, public domain? Yes. Um, private chat room that they can't get a warrant for because they don't know about it or they don't think someone articulated enough um, of a of a imminent violent threat like the bank robbery I talked about and and the mob hit you talked about these are the, this is good for television uh, shows but not for reality so yeah. they're up against it right now it's true it's true the law we are proving needs to be amended to make it safe for all Americans also again just to give just to give your your listeners uh, a, a taste of the legal challenges here. The, the notion that we talked about the challenge of walking into a hotel um, corporation and saying, we want everybody who was here for a week. Mm-hmm. Interesting, challenging. Um, similarly, the geolocation data off of cell phones. So do, you, do Americans want the government to be able to say, I want the cell phone number of everybody who, who pinged off a cell around the Capitol during the following hours? Do they, do they feel that that is an infringement on civil rights and the right to protest? How do you know who was the bad guy and who wasn't? Can we store that data for later use or not? Lots of questions about civil liberties and privacy. And I find it interesting, Jill and Victor, that the very same people, some of them who host television shows, who, would, who get exercised when we talk about the FBI potentially being able to have a domestic terrorism law and to monitor domestic people and, and organizations are now screaming bloody murder that the FBI hasn't done it against the group they don't like. So we've got some tough questions to wrestle it's, with. Here. You know, there's a real live incident of that in Chicago. Two restaurants are being boycotted because the owners were there. Now, the owners are now saying, oh, I was at the rally, but I didn't break into the Capitol. Right. The only way we'll know if they broke into the Capitol is by reviewing the crime scene records, which would be all the videos taken there, and seeing if their face pops up inside the Capitol. That means they were a part of this violent insurrection and are guilty. Um, Their cell phone records would prove whether they were only at the mall or whether they were in the Capitol. So these are, as you pointed out, this is why we need a domestic terrorism law. I hope it will be high on the priority list for President Biden. 
I know that in the past, Senator Amy Klobuchar has uh, co-sponsored a, a domestic terror legislation, and so have many others. And I, I think we'll see that get traction. But I also completely understand the concerns about the potential for, for abuse. Imagine if we had that domestic terrorism law while Donald Trump is president, and you'll recall him tweeting, I hereby designate Antifa a terrorist organization, right? Now that was complete utter BS because we don't have a way of designating a terrorist organization, mm -hmm. but let's say we did, right? And now the president has tweeted, I don't like these people, they don't like me, investigate them. And now some, some unethical attorney general tells the FBI, spy on um, these people the president doesn't like. So we, we've got to get that right. But we got it, we got it mostly right after 9-11 with the Patriot Act. There were exploitations. There was the storage of metadata from phone, phone bills, phone records. But that's been corrected. We, we got to work through it. Right, right. And I know um, AOC, I think, released a tweet the other day. Um, I think Norm um, Ornstein, he was arguing for a similar concept of a new domestic terrorism law reforms. But she, I think, argued that it wasn't that there wasn't enough domestic terrorism laws. It was that there, like, they didn't kind of employ resources and intelligence in the right way. What would you say to AOC's tweet and kind of what she um, is claiming there? So I, I haven't seen AOC's uh, tweet, but I, I heard loud and clear what Jill just said, which is there are still, despite this gap in the law, there are still laws. So, you know, in, uh, interstate travel to incite violence, right, is a, is a serious hit. Um, assault on a federal officer is a serious hit. Um, you know, bomb making, um, um, uh, modifying your semi-automatic weapon into an automatic weapon. These are all serious hits. Mm -hmm. So we're back to what Jill re referenced, which is, gee, I wonder if that more aggressive use of existing law might have happened if we changed the skin color of this group. And I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that that could play a role. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something I want to get into right now, which is something that many of my generation are really disturbed about in terms of just the disparity in law enforcement's response to this unsuccessful coup attempt after the Black Lives Matter protests, um, which we saw much more police presence and um, much more violence um, from the police and, and kind of uh, arresting the protesters. What do you think that tells you about the racial disparity um, in terms of the responses that you saw um, on Wednesday compared to Black Lives Matter and their protest? And what does that mean for, I guess, the changes that need to be implemented going forward? Well, sad, sadly, I think it's even worse than we realized because the FBI director has said that uh, on Capitol Hill, which again, incurred the wrath of, of the president, um, hey, Antifa is an ideology. We're not seeing the organizational structure and direction there. Um, BLM not committing any majority of violence. And, you know, at the FBI uh, senior executives I speak with, when I ask them who, who got arrested, who are they looking at? They go, you know, it's a lot of ne'er-do-wells um, who just want to have disorder, um, plus a lot of uh, global anarchists, which is another group entirely, by the way. Um, and, it's, and, and it's the terrorist groups. It, it's, it's Boogaloo and it's Proud Boys, and, and it's violent extremist groups who want to kidnap the, pre, the, uh, the governor of Michigan, right? So um, it's not, so the, what I'm saying is the response we're getting on the streets by law enforcement to a Black Lives Matter protest is wholly inconsistent with the threat and intelligence about the risk they pose. So therefore, you should start assuming that maybe that skin color has something to do with it. And then juxtapose that with what we saw at the Capitol and Capitol Police moving barricades so people could enter. And then I get very concerned about current or former police officers and military who, uh, who align with this group. Look, we have a president who during his campaign had dozens of cops for Trump rallies. There was one here where I live, highly, highly attended. Mm -hmm. So He's pandering to the people with power and who execute the law. And they, many of them are with him. And we've heard now re official reporting that many police departments are conducting internal inquiries right now about who traveled to engage in this protest. And I can tell you one of the things, and this is something that we're working on, but there appear to be some, um, some reporting that 
some of the crowd flashed badges at the Capitol Police. And I, I don't know if that's accurate, but, but I can tell you from my, my personal existence in, in 25 years in law enforcement, a badge goes a long way to opening a door. I, I want to follow up on something you said about the existing laws that could be used. Um, and let's talk about some of the charges you think the FBI could be investigating right now that could be the basis for prosecution going forward. So you've mentioned a couple, but you, you want to go through some of them uh, that you think are the, the most effective ways uh, to proceed. And, and, I, and I also, I should have said this first, which is uh, as a follow-up to what you were just saying about law enforcement, let's go back to the first pardon that Donald Trump issued. It was to Sheriff Joe Arpaio, which was a clear message Law enforcement, you can do anything you want, and I will forgive you. You don't have to obey the laws. You don't have to follow court orders. I got your back. So he has been cozying up to them, and that is a danger. But let's go back to what prosecutions might, might we be able to see? Well, let, let me just add, add the military component in terms of appeasing uh, the military by saying, don't forget that Navy SEAL chief that was um, exonerated by Trump, who, in my opinion, committed war crimes. Yes, and yes. In, who, in my opinion, he, he, was, he was outed by his own team who said, we, we can't take this anymore. Much younger SEALs who said, this isn't right. And then this guy gets off the hook because of Trump. So um, we got a problem. And with regard to charges, I, the ideal, and we referred to this earlier, ideally, at some point, we start seeing an enterprise approach to this investigation, meaning they, they want to look at an organization. This could be an opportunity to say, Proud Boys, um, you're done, and here's why. We're going to take you out from an enterprise um, and conspiracy charges. Conspiracy charges would be really helpful here. Also, I would love to see some civil um, fines, uh, for, for, criminal forfeiture, seizure of assets, right? Um, if Proud Boys has a budget or some other group has a, a bank account, start bringing pain to them financially. That would be awesome as well. Um, but as I said, right now, we're the Hobbs Act, which is, uh, you know, a, a kind of a catch-all violence, yes. you know, a, a catch-all violence thing that we use for gangs, for people traveling. Hey, did they stay at a hotel in interstate commerce? Did they travel in interstate commerce? Yes, they did. That will get the FBI involved in what would otherwise be a routine act of violence. So mm -hmm. I imagine Hobbs Act's being considered, lots of conspiracy, uh, weapons charges will be very serious. Um, at, the, at the least for now, you've got trespass, federal trespass with, with uh, violence. All of that great to get them in the door. The message needs to be, there are consequences to these actions. I talk about that in my book. Um, one of the chapters of the, the seven C's is consequences. It has to be consequences. If you're going to enforce a code of conduct, whether you're in a classroom, a company, a community, or a country, you better have a co consequences to those who don't abide by your code. And I think Americans, many of them, have lost their code because they've forgotten the core values of a democracy. Well, we're going and, to be talking about your book going forward, but um, in addition to the crimes you've mentioned, um, I think there could be um, murder charges because once you're in a conspiracy, you are responsible for the acts of all your co-conspirators. So whoever hit the Capitol Police officer with fire extinguisher and ended up killing him is your responsibility. So I think murder could be a possibility. Um, the damage to the uh, federal property, the theft of federal property, uh, the threat to hang Pence, uh, and the erection of the gallows by someone who was part of that, uh, endangering Congress, um, and frankly, sedition, the interference with our government. So I think we have a lot of laws that can be used for serious consequences to go back to your book. Um, and um, I think we have no, no choice but to go ahead with that. So let's move into your book, um, The FBI Way. You left the FBI in 2012, it's now 2021, 
And as a fellow author, I know how long it takes to write a book. I started in 2008 and mine came out in 2020. So um, did you spend all that time writing this book or was there something that happened in the last four years, for example, that motivated you to write the book? It didn't take me as long as you did. And and the the answer is I, I've done something I, I thought I would never do, which I've been that guy who writes the book about the inside uh, the FBI. I I usually didn't read even read those books, but I'm gonna tell you something. What prompted what prompted this was my absolute consternation with the bashing of the bureau that's been taking place over the last four years and my inside knowledge that this wasn't reality. This this perception of the FBI by the public, driven by Donald Trump and his cohort, has undermined the FBI's ability to succeed in securing the nation. So um, this is far more than just, ah, I think that agency has problems. This is, you are undermining one of the key institutions in securing this nation. And I go a step further with the book, which is not only is it not what you're hearing, but it is so good at getting it right most of the time that it should be held up as an example for your business, your company community. If you're leading a little, little league team or a Fortune 500 company, there are learn how the FBI defends its core values inside the organization, performs with excellence at a very high level when the stakes are the highest, and you don't need to spend 25 years inside the agency to learn it. Yeah, I've, yeah. Just, I've distilled it down to the seven C's that I call the FBI way. I completely share your views, Frank. Um, and I was very proud to work with the FBI. As you can see, I am wearing an FBI t-shirt today instead of a brooch. I have a embroidered FBI symbol. Um, and working with FBI agents and putting them on the stand, knowing they would be believed and credible to a jury, was made my job easier as a prosecutor. And I would add that not only has the president undermined the FBI, which he certainly has, but he has done serious destruction to the Department of Justice. Uh, and I am now wondering, what can the new administration do to restore the public's trust in both the FBI and the Department of Justice? So the first, the first response I have is the easiest one, which is stay the hell out of the way. In other words, let, let career dedicated professionals do the job that the American taxpayer asks them to do. So, you know, I cringe when I hear even Democrats say, hey, this is a great chance for uh, Biden to pick his own FBI director. I go, well, it, it might be, but hold on a minute. We have a 10-year, yeah, yeah. an established 10-year term yeah. for an FBI director, and there is a reason for that. We've just been through the firing of an FBI director, Jim Comey, for political reasons. And so if we do it again, we can't complain about Trump firing Comey and then suggest that, hey, Biden gets to choose a new FBI director. No, no not necessarily. It's a 10-year term to keep the director out of politics. The same goes for the attorney general who you know, Jill, is supposed to be the attorney for America, not for the president. So stay out of the way. Um, let career professionals do what they do. And even, I'll go a step further, lots of controversy over this, but Joe Biden should stay out of the way with regard to decisions about prosecuting uh, Trump and his cohorts and let professionals at state and uh, federal offices do what they need to do. Yeah, and I totally agree. And I think that every kind of indication that we have about Biden will suggest that he will be independent and or he will let the FBI and the DOJ do its job, which is so important. Um, you know, your book is um, so riveting to me because throughout the throughout each chapter, you also weave into like kind of your personal experiences at the FBI. Can you talk a little bit about some of your highlights in your service in the FBI and whether there's any semblance, I know we kind of talked about this a little bit beforehand, but whether there is any semblance to what my generation may find in shows like Criminal Minds or Quantico or other movies? Great question, because I, um, I do a lot of speaking with young people who are interested in public service, and I, I love doing it, but I also, so I'm, I'm proud that I've been able to encourage talented young people into FBI and other public service careers, but I, I also make sure that if I identify some things 
um, in the in the younger generation that might not make that person suited to what I know is a vocation, a calling, um, life and death situations where they might need to take a life or their own life might be taken or they're not up for the 24-7 on duty, no weekends, holidays, that, that deal, I will dissuade them from it. So um, in terms of um, my career, highlights are an interesting word because so much of my what's memorable about my career involves what you might call disturbing or more lowlights. But I look, I, I, was, um, I was the on-scene commander for the uh, first anthrax murder in U.S. history. It was the largest hazardous materials crime scene in the history of the FBI. And that was at the America Media Incorporated AMI building in Boca Raton, Florida, where a man died from anthrax exposure, anthrax having been sent in the mail to that building. I cite that example, not simply as a war story, but to illustrate in the the last chapter of the book is called consistency. That's one of the seven C's. Meaning when you're under unprecedented stress and crisis, when something has never been seen before, our nation's going through this right now. It's, it's human nature to say, holy cow, um, we've never seen this before. We should abandon all principles that got us here and we should figure out some new way to deal with this unprecedented crisis. And, and while there were those who would say that in the anthrax murder, hey, we've never entered a 60,000 square foot, three-story anthrax filled building to look for microscopic score, uh, spores where someone has died. I stopped and said, is this a crime scene? Yes. Is the FBI really good at crime scenes? Yes. Do we have hazmat training? Well, yeah, we go into meth labs all the time. Okay, so this is a hazmat crime scene. Yes, let's go, right? So I would tell the nation right now saying, we've never seen this before, woe is me, there must be some other way we have to resolve this. I say consistency means dancing with whoever brought you to the dance. We've got rule uh, rule of law, three equal branches of government and a constitution. If we stick to that and become conservators of the Constitution, each one of us, we will get through this. We've been through civil war, the Vietnam protest period, presidential assassinations and impeachments. We can get through this too. Let's not abandon what what brought us here. So anthrax, um, clearly um, something significant in my background. But look, I I worked crimes against children. I supervised a crimes against children squad in San Francisco. Um, There was nothing more disturbing about that work. Uh, and I was the father of very young kids at the time, which I think made it even more disturbing. Um, but having an impact, recovering a kidnapped child to their parents um, is phenomenal. Taking a young person out of a sexually abusive or exploitative environment is very impactful. Um, and then moving forward, public corruption is a, is a plight. It is a plague in certain cities and communities. And so in Cleveland, where I headed that field office, we, the teams, the very talented teams of agents there, took out about 70, convicted about 70 public officials, including the county commissioner, and literally changed the form of government in Cuyahoga County from three guys who controlled everything to a much larger um, commission headed by a professional a public administration official. The Cleveland area had been had been economically depressed, and we kept wondering why. It's a it's a city on a lake. It's got the Cleveland Clinic. It's got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's got the largest theater district outside of New York. What's going on here? And the answer, in part, was that you had to pay off the county commissioners to build anything and get anything done in the county. So that kind of satisfaction of literally changing the form of government because of corruption is something I, I look back on with some pride. I mean, that is totally inspiring. Do you have any, I mean, I think my generation would be so fascinated by that. Do you have any advice for anyone who does want to get involved in that and what they can do um, to get involved? Well, first, do your homework and learn everything you can about the organization. Start online at FBI.gov. It's a great website. It's a fun website. Takes you through the myriad responsibilities of the Bureau. And one of the things I, I tell people is, on TV, there's a lot of gun and badge, shoot them up FBI shows, but the reality is some of the best work in the FBI isn't with special agents necessarily, but partnering with those agents 
to do things like intelligence analysis. The FBI since 9-11 is an intelligence-driven, predictive organization. Intelligence analysts sit on every squad in every office and help shape where a case goes or whether a case should even be opened because there's another priority or where informants are needed. So <laughs> intelligence analysis is fantastic. There are surveillance specialists who are not agents. There are laboratory PhD scientists who are not agents. There are linguists um, and I could go on and on. So the careers are hundreds uh, of different roles within the FBI. You can find something in there if you feel the calling. Yeah. And you mentioned something about how high risk and how intense the job is, you know, having to work every single day on weekends as well. What prepares you for that moment? And is, is that something that kind of you were, I guess, raised to kind of live with? Or like, how, how does someone prepare for that moment in which, you know, they have to go into the uh, academy and, you know, it's 24-7 from there and, you know, it's very intense and, and high risk? So you, you truly have to be called to this. And I, and I would go a step further and say your family, if you, if you have a family, they have to have that same call. I, I tell in the book about, you know, I, I uh, was married young in law school. And when I applied to the bureau, a female agent came to our apartment and sat down with my wife and said, uh, you know, I said, Frank, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to her. And so, you know, she said, are, are you in for uh, moves around the country? For Frank not to be around in nights and weekends or holidays sometimes, do you understand what you're signing up for? And, and thankfully, she was, she was in. She's a, a dedicated nurse, uh, highly skilled nurse, a nurse manager, clinical director of nursing. It's the nursing career for her was great because you could keep moving and you're in high demand. But um, that's, you know, that's the, your family's got to sign up for that. And if you're into... You know, I hear a young, lot of young people uh, in their 20s talking about uh, work-life balance. Where's the work-life balance? And I, I, have, a, I have more of a 30,000-foot view of work-life balance, which is there are going to be years that are like hell, and then there's going to be years where you can sit back and go, you know, I had a quiet year at the office this year. You know, if, but when you start going, uh, I had no work-life balance this week, that's 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 a tough challenge in the FBI. Moving back to the book, um, you've mentioned a couple of times the seven C's that the FBI follows, and which are code, conservancy, clarity, consequences, compassion, credibility, and consistency. Uh, and you've mentioned particularly some examples of consistency, for example. But could you, I think, put in context all seven? and maybe give some examples so that the audience really gets what you're saying in the book. Sure, thank thank you. I'll I'll go I'll go quickly and I also don't want to reveal so much that right. you you've heard <laughs> the book but but like a movie trailer. Have you ever watched a movie trailer and go, I don't think I need to watch that movie. Right. But right. So here's the, here's the deal. The seven C's start with the first C of code. Code means the conduct by which you want to lead your life and you want your team to understand is how we're going to move through this journey together. Code starts with core values. You, you, you identify as a company, as a family, as a country, what are our core values that we are going to defend against all threats? From there, you can develop your code, which is saying, this is how we conduct ourselves. And the FBI does that in droves. They have clearly articulated core values, which I include in the first chapter. And then they have this rigorous code. Oh my gosh, do we have, were there regulations in the FBI? But they're there for a purpose. And, they're, and then we move on to the next C, which is clarity. It's not helpful to have a code if nobody knows what your code is. So your organization has to have it clearly articulated for them. No FBI agent can tell you, I don't know what our investigative priorities are. I don't know what will happen to me if I drive drunk. I have no idea what happens to me if I sleep with an informant. Well, it's all there. There's no wiggle room. You can't claim ignorance. Move on to the, to the next C. There better be consequences. If you want compliance, there better be consequences for those who violate the code. Can you see the analogy to what's going on in the country right now? Have we lost our way with regard to core values? Are there Americans thinking there should be no consequences for what Trump has done, or for those rioters who broke into the Capitol. Move on from uh, clarity to consequences to compassion. 
compassion. I, I had times in my career where I was that guy in charge of disciplinary decisions, in my case, for a unit handling discipline against FBI employees for the eastern half of the United States. There were times when I thought nobody was going to sit with me in the cafeteria, but somebody's got to get consequences and compassion joined at the hip so that you can decide fairly what to do with someone in your family or your company or your country who hasn't played by the rules. And that means getting all the facts. Why, why is compassion so important? If people decide that you're very unfair, you're, you're really harsh on how you come down on people, you don't even see what went on in this agent's life. I give the example in the book of perhaps one of the greatest examples of compassion in the disciplinary process that I was directly involved in. One day as I'm, I got a stack of disciplinary decisions on my desk, one of my adjudicators walks into my office and says, boss, just a heads up, we have a case coming in from investigations where an agent bought heroin for his wife. And I looked up from my desk and I said, well, that will be a termination. And the agent looked at me and went, I don't know. When we went through that case and we saw the stress in this agent's life, the efforts he had made to get his wife into rehab and had done so successfully, and the day he, when he was called into work unexpectedly on a major case that he was a, a champion of, and no one was available to take care of his kids. His wife was going through withdrawal and completely incapacitated. No one else to, to come in. He made the horrible decision to pile the kids in the car, drive into the inner city, and find his wife a fix to get her through that day so he could go into work. Hmm. He got a heavy hit in a financial suspension from work. But the compassion part came in when he was not fired but rather the employee assistance program came in to his rescue and his family's rescue. There has to be compassion with your consequences. The FBI shows compassion every day in their victim witness program, which does unbelievable work with victims of crime, particularly um, um, teenage victims of, um, of prostitution um, who, and, and taking them out of that. The, the victim witness program is about compassion that works to solve crimes. Um, and then after compassion, we, we can talk about, uh, oh, did we talk about conservancy? Yeah, that's the next. Conservancy is the concept that we're, the responsibility for our core values is a team sport. It's not, so, I, I've worked in the private sector after the FBI. If you ask somebody, hey, who, who in the company handles uh, standards and integrity? They'll go, oh, it's that office down the hall. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. As a nation also, we're supposed to be the conservators of the country's core values. That's why we vote people in and out. So we're all conservators. That concept is from day one in the FBI. And it's required if you move up the management ladder in the Bureau that you spend time in inspections, audits, compliance, internal affairs investigations. Why? To get you that concept that, wait a minute, I'm my neighbor's keeper. I'm responsible for enforcing these values, not somebody down the hall. Then we get to um, credibility. Credibility is not about being perfect. The, if, this, if people think this is a book that Frank wrote to show us the FBI is perfect, they've got the wrong book. That's not this book. This book is that credibility is not about being perfect. It's about being passionate about getting it right and owning up to accountability. Here's the national angle again right now, right? Accountability when you screw up and owning up to it. And um, the, the, con the concept that, uh, the example I give in the book, one of many with regard to credibility is, guess who was my boss for a period of time in my career as a young supervisor at headquarters? A guy by the name of Robert Philip Hansen was my unit chief. Wow. Robert Philip Hansen was the most damaging spy in the history of the FBI. Many years after I went on from that unit, I was the number two official at FBI Miami. I'm driving to work on the Florida Turnpike. I have the radio on and I hear the FBI has arrested one of its own, Robert Philip Hansen, for espionage on behalf of the Russians. I had to pull the car over because I felt like I had been punched in the stomach to learn that 
my former unit chief had spied for the Russian for 10 years. You say, Frank, why did you put this case in the credibility chapter? What's credible about that? My point is that the FBI should never have hired this guy, didn't get on to him for 10 years, but when they got him, they came out, Louis Free came out in the open and said, we screwed up at a press conference. This is on us. And here's what we're going to do to fix it. And let me tell you something. We all curse Hanson out for many reasons, but one of them is because of the rules in place on financial disclosure, uh, poly regular polygraphs, fi uh, tra foreign travel, financial analysis of your whole household income. That's all because of Hanson. That's credibility when you screw up, announce it, and show how you're going to fix it. And the last chapter is consistency. We talked about that with regard to the anthrax site. We talked about that with regard to our nation sticking with the values that got us here because a battle rhythm in life of doing things consistently makes it less likely that you're going to lose your core values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is such a great synopsis of everything that you offer. And again, um, we're not going to get into all of them because we want you to read the book. But um, one last question to end the podcast. You know, all of the codes are so important for rising leaders, government institutions, and frankly, every single workplace. How do you hope people and organizations will apply these codes to the work that they do and also their personal lives? Well, well, I, this book has has leadership lessons that apply across the board. If you're running a compliance department in a company, um, if you're running a classroom, if you've got, if you're a dean of a college, if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or you're simply an American citizen that wants to get it right, the the there's examples in each and every one of the chapters about how to apply this to your leadership journey, and I wrap it up at the end. Um, with an epilogue that, that works you through each of the chapters and what you can do in your own life to apply those lessons. For sure. Well, we are so appreciative and we, thank so yeah, thank you so much for this. Good I luck kinda... with your book. I know it's going to be a bestseller and uh, anybody can tell from our conversation what a great storyteller you are mm -hmm. and a good thinker and that your book will be worth reading. So Definitely. good luck. Yeah. For sure. Thank you so much. You're very kind. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care and stay well. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.